Well, good morning to you folks. It's good to be back with you after one of our teaching pastors for many years at Johnson Ferry, Thomas Nelson, preached to you, and then Paul preaching the word last Sunday. Glad to be back with you. And I told the folks at the Ed Clock service, this isn't in the Bible, but I think there's a special blessing for folks who get up and go to church on a rainy Sunday morning. And I hope you're going to feel it today by being here. And those of you online, I'm sorry you're missing the blessing of that, but we're glad you're joining us online. Now, today I want to talk to you about keeping the main thing the main thing by focusing on the Great Commission. You know, there's probably a few passages, maybe John 3.16, maybe Luke 2, that are as familiar as the Great Commission of Jesus Christ in a church like this. But it is always my hope that as we look at what is familiar to us, that the Holy Spirit will give us fresh insight and convict us about why this is so important to Marbley Baptist and every single church. So I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. If you're new to Bible study, it's an easy book to find. The first book of the New Covenant is Matthew We're in the last chapter of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20. So if you're physically able, if you'll stand now, and let's give honor to God in the reading of his word. But the eleven disciples proceed to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Father, We need you to speak to us today, and we know that you prepared a message that is personal for all of us. So, Father, as we stand before you to honor you as our King of kings, we pray that our hearts will be receptive by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we will focus on Jesus and the main thing. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. January 3rd, 1982 was a big day in my life. Why is that? Well, it was my first sermon as the new founding pastor of this little startup church in North Atlanta. We were meeting in the reception area of an unleased doctor's office. And in beginning like that, you wonder, what in the world do you preach in a setting like this? And the Lord led me to this text, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, in a sermon entitled, God's Vision for the Church. And one thing that we can know from sure, because of what Jesus does for us in presenting the Great Commission, is that the mission of the church never changes. No matter what era you live in, no matter what your age, it never changes. The methodologies of ministry will change, but the mission that Christ has given his church is constant. So let's look at that today, beginning in verse 16. 
But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, this is another appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. Remember, he made about 10 to 11 appearances after his resurrection and before he ascended to heaven. And in the last message that I gave you on the come to Jesus talk, it was one of those appearances. So we're going to have a little review. You may have already forgotten all that, but let's have a little review. What were the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection? First to Mary Magdalene. Secondly, to women that were with Mary Magdalene at the tomb on the morning of his resurrection. Some biblical scholars put those two together. And then sometime that day he appeared to Peter. We don't know what the conversation was about there. Later that day he appeared to Cleopas, another man, on the road to Emmaus. They were distressed that what the man they felt that was Messiah had been killed, and they didn't know it was Jesus initially until they discovered who it was. And then that very night, the fifth appearance of Jesus occurred the night of his resurrection as 10 of the 12 disciples were behind closed doors and they were scared to death. They were going to be arrested like Jesus and perhaps crucified like Jesus. But one disciple wasn't with them. And so eight days later, Thomas, that one disciple who said he'd not believed till he saw the nail scars in his hand and his side, Jesus calls him out. And that was another appearance. And then after that, we also see that there was that come to Jesus talk where he appeared to Peter and six other disciples and Peter and Jesus were reconciled. And then we see Jesus appearing to 500 people at once. Now, some of you that are skeptical or if you have friends that are skeptical about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, some say, well, it was just people hallucinating because they wanted to believe Jesus rose. Well, psychiatrists will tell you that no two people have the same hallucination. That doesn't happen. So 500 people at once all seeing Jesus alive, that's just more historical evidence that the resurrection actually occurred. Then he appeared to James, his brother. His siblings were skeptical about him. But he appeared to James, and James became one of the key leaders in the church. And then this appearance that is told to us was on a mountain in Galilee. Now, if you ever go to Israel and you go to the Sea of Galilee, there are mountains on all sides or really every part except the part where the Jordan River drains out. And those mountains were where Jesus went when he wanted to pray early in the morning or sometimes all night in seeking the Father's will before a big decision. And so I imagine it was a mountain around the Sea of Galilee where so many of these disciples would be familiar. And he told them, go and meet me there. So they are coming to Jesus in what was the 10th or 11th appearance. And then they had the final appearance when he ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives. But this is not the Mount of Olives. This is a mountain around the Sea of Galilee. And they went because they trusted Jesus. They had faith in Jesus. He had commanded them to go there. And the way that we show Jesus we love him is to obey his commands. So they went with the expectation that he was going to show up. And when he shows up, this is what it said in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Now, I would say worship is an understatement. They spent three years with Jesus. They know he's been crucified on the cross. He has been buried. He has risen again. This is another appearance. Well, understandably, they worship him. They know he's the son of God. They know who he is. But then in that verse, it says some were doubtful. Can you imagine? 
The man is risen from the dead, and he's had all these appearances to them, and some were doubtful. Now, I've got a confession to make. When I was a young pastor, I gave the disciples a fit about this. I just gave them a fit. How sorry could they be to be doubting when he has risen from the dead? And I really think I was pretty stupid on my part. Because the context in verse 18 really explains that. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, understand this. This appearance of Jesus with his disciples on a mountain around Galilee was a time when the disciples are already clear what the mission is. We're going to look at the mission. He reiterates the mission. And he reiterates the mission kind of like a coach giving a last-minute pep talk in the locker room before the game. Kind of like a commanding officer before the troops are going out into battle. Just helping them to stay on what is the main thing. But at this point, they already know the mission. He's been spending time with them. He spent three years with them. I don't believe they were doubting Jesus. I believe they were doubting themselves. Because Jesus had given them a doubt-sized challenge. Here are ordinary guys, 11 men. They haven't been to Bible college. They haven't been out of Israel. Some of them are probably illiterate. They didn't have any cars, any trains, any planes, any fax machines, any emails, any radio, any TV. They were just ordinary guys with very little training, and they were to go and bring the gospel to the whole world. Wouldn't you have doubts? I mean, that's an overwhelming challenge. So I think what they're dealing with is their own personal doubts and inadequacies, as God has given them what I call a doubt-sized challenge. In other words, a challenge that is so big that any intelligent human being is going to understandably have some doubts about themselves and being able to carry it out. And so in verse 18, he comes up and he reassures them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, all the power they need to fulfill this mission is there in Jesus. They are to keep their focus on Christ and then he reiterates the mission. Look at verse 19. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, the first thing he says is the command to go. But do you realize that Greek word also can be translated as you are going? Now that helps because then we realize if you're a follower of Christ you're called to be a witness for Christ so as you are going to work as you're going to the grocery store as you're going hunting with your buddies as you're going to school as you're going about life we're to make disciples we're to reach people for Jesus Christ we do that as a witness now a witness is someone who tells what they know. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, you're obviously not a witness. But if you do have a relationship with Christ and you live a sorry life, your verbal witness is not going to be taken seriously. If you do live a life that is devoted to Christ, then your verbal witness is going to have more power because our witness is with our words and with our actions. It is both. You can't separate the two. So the command is to go. You may be sent out to the remotest part of the earth, but as you're going, you may go to the grocery store. 
and just get in a conversation with somebody. And it could be a divine appointment, an opportunity to talk to them about the Lord. You see, Christ wants us to have this as the priority of our life, to go and make disciples. Now, he doesn't say go and make converts. He says go and make disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is a student. You go to Israel today, you see the Orthodox rabbis. They have all kinds of young rabbis around them. It's very similar in the first century. They would have young men that would just follow a rabbi and they would want to be like him. They would want to learn from him. Well, to be a disciple of Jesus is to grow in Christ-likeness. That means to have more of the spirit and the character of Jesus, allowing the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the Word of God to shape your life into becoming more and more like Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. And a disciple has a mission. And that is what Jesus is talking about, to go and make disciples. Now, think about it this way. Think about the Nick Saban School of Coaching. Do you realize there have been 16 college head football coaches that worked with Nick Saban before that? Nine of them in the SEC. Hey, you Aggie fans, you got one of them. I mean, Kirby Smart in Georgia, Jimbo Fisher. There's all kind of Saban disciples out there. You might note not a single one has ever beaten him yet. I mean, he's taught them pretty good. Not a single one's beaten them. Well, no disciple of Jesus is going to be as great as Jesus. But we're to follow him and become more like him in spirit and character. And so what he is telling the disciples, I want you to go and make disciples. In other words, he's saying to his disciples, disciples, make disciples. And where do they go? Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Well, This is so important. I've shared this in an early sermon with you, but Jesus knew that geographical boundaries and names of nations would be changing in every decade. So he uses the word ethnos. The word ethnos or ethnos is the Greek word for nations. But it really is where we get the word ethnics or ethnicity. In other words, Jesus in his genius here, knowing that nations would change their name and geographical boundaries would change, but people groups stay basically the same. People groups have a common language and they have a common culture. And that language may evolve, obviously, but they have that in common. And people groups can be a tribe of hundreds. It can be a people group of mega millions. But what Jesus is saying, look, I want you to go and make disciples of all the people groups. Now, missiologists tell us that there are about 11,000 people groups on the face of the earth. They tell us about 7,000 of those people groups are considered unreached. And how do they define that? They consider any people group that's less than 2% Christian to be an unreached people group. So you could even say the Japanese are an unreached people group. Even though they've had a Christian witness and churches there for hundreds of years, less than 2% of the population are followers of Christ. But then of those unreached people groups, the 7,000, of those, about 3,000 are unreached and unengaged with the gospel. That means there's no known Christian, no known church, no known ministry of any kind that is Christ-centered in that people group. And the reason there's still 3,000 that are unengaged and unreached 2,000 years after Jesus gave this charge to the church is they're hard to get to. They're often a primitive tribe in a remote area 
or they could be in a highly restricted government or Muslim regime. They're just hard to get to. Now, I shared with you in an earlier sermon that what is so exciting, though, just 10 years ago in 2011, there were over 3,800 unreached, unengaged people groups. Now it's 3,000. It's the quickest, sharpest drop in the history of the church over 2,000 years, which tells us God is up to something big today. He's up to something really big. And so our calling is to go and make disciples from every people group on the face of the earth. That is our calling. That means it begins right here in Longview, or it begins with your neighborhood, or it begins with your family, but it goes to the ends of the earth. And there are always people in the church, oh, we just need to worry about the people in Longview. There's so many lost people in Longview. We don't need to worry about those folks all across the ocean. That is not biblical. That is not Christ-like. We're to focus on both local and global in our calling. Because that is the mission that Christ has given his church. And how do you know that a person has been reached? Well, Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, we're known as Baptists because we practice what is called believer's baptism by immersion. And on this particular biblical doctrine and teaching, really, we're right on on that. There's nothing in the Bible about infant baptism. That's a church tradition. All you see in Acts, all you see in the New Testament, is that when a person decides to follow Christ, to become a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, the first thing we're commanded to do is to be baptized. Why? Because it is a public testimony that we have decided to trust Christ. Have you done that? Now, you say, well, I've been baptized as an infant. Well, that's not biblical. There's nothing Jesus teaches about that. It's not your parents' decision. You say, well, I was baptized when I was seven years old. Were you a Christian, though? Because if you really had not trusted Christ at seven years old in a Baptist church, you've got it backwards. We're to be baptized after we have made the decision to trust Christ as our Lord and Savior. And here's what's so amazing in baptism. You've got the beautiful picture of the gospel. A person goes into the water, goes under the water, rises up out of the water. It's a picture of the gospel. Christ lived, he died and was buried, he rose from the dead. You've got that beautiful picture. You also see an outward symbol as a person is, has had their heart cleansed by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. They're testifying of that with the outward cleansing of the water. Now, nobody gets saved in being baptized. Nobody gets saved. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. But if you're going to be obedient to the command of Christ, that we be public in our testimony of following Christ, then you want to be baptized. Now, as you think about the mission of the church, and maybe you've been in Marbley uh, for many years, but you've never been baptized as a believer, you really want to get that right. You really do. Because when you think about carrying out this great commission of making disciples, and how do we know? The only way we know in the Bible that people have become a disciple is through baptism. That's the only way we know. So if you have bucked Jesus on the very first thing he commands you to do after you accept Christ, you really want to get that right. I urge you to do so. Why not today go ahead and decide that? 
and the ministers will be glad to baptize you in a future service. Also this, have you noticed this? We're not baptized in the name of Jesus. We're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father chooses His children. Christ saves and redeems us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and then goes, begins that process of us becoming more and more like Christ in spirit and character. We're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. They're all a testimony. Really, you look at the Trinity, you see a wonderful testimony of the Trinity in every believer's baptismal service. Right there. So this is what Jesus calls us to do. We're to go and reach people for Christ. And how do you know you've reached them? We're see that they baptize. And you need to be willing to be baptized as a follower of Christ. But then look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, do you realize that Jesus has an equal focus in the Great Commission on evangelism and discipleship, on reaching and teaching? It's an equal focus. And there are people in the church that get lopsided here. You may have churches that are great on evangelism. They're reaching all kinds of people for Christ. But when it comes theologically and biblically, they're a mile wide and about an inch deep. Then you got other churches. Man, they're big on discipleship. Man, they're big on the deeper life and total devotion and going deep into faith. And they often develop what I call a holy huddle. They just focused on themselves. And when you're on, you ever notice what you see on the outside of a huddle, just a bunch of rear ends? It's not a real attractive sight. Not real inviting with a huddle there. But a lot of Christians very pridefully, oh, we, we've got the deeper discipleship in our church. Jesus says it's both. It's not one or the other. It's evangelism. It is discipleship. It is reaching. It is teaching. Now, what are the commands of God when Jesus said, look at what he says in verse 28. He says, teaching them to observe what I commanded you. The commands are the word of God. So in the church, the responsibility of the pastor and the Bible teachers, the leaders and the staff is to see that people are discipled in the word of God. As you're praying for your pastor search team here, pray that the man that is called here will be true to preaching and teaching the commands of God. That is the Word of God. Because the reality is there will not be discipleship unless the Word of God is preached and taught. Otherwise, you get man's opinions, and a lot of that stinks. So Jesus is saying it's reaching and teaching. It's reaching and discipling. It's an equal emphasis. And churches can to get lopsided there. It is both. And in the preaching and teaching. Now listen, are you listening? In the preaching and teaching. The goal is not to build up a lot of Bible knowledge in the people in the church. The goal is not to build up a lot of Bible knowledge of the people in your Bible study. The goal is to make disciples. That's the goal. And if you're a Bible teacher here at Marbley, 
whether it's this campus or the Marshall campus. You want to have as your prayer every time you're preparing to teach the Word. Lord, help me to remember this is about making disciples. This is not about spoon-feeding them all kind of biblical knowledge. It is about making disciples. And here's the key. If you know you're doing it, disciples make disciples. So if you've got the same folks in your Sunday Bible study class, Hadn't been a whole lot of change there over the last three, five, ten years. You ain't making disciples. You're just building up Bible knowledge. You've forgotten the purpose of why we teach the Word and preach the Word. It is to make disciples. How are you doing there? Jesus makes it very simple to reach and to teach. How are you doing? Well, look at what he says at the end of the Great Commission. He says, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus does here. In verse 18, in verse 18, Jesus reassures him with his power. All authority has been given to him on heaven and earth. But now at the end of this overwhelming doubt-sized challenge of reaching every people group with the gospel on the face of the earth, he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. In other words, the Lord Jesus is giving us a great promise. He is never going to desert us. And do you realize what that means with the power of Christ, as he reassures him up front, and then the promise at the end, it means that the work of the church is going to be completed one day. And you may live in a culture with a godless government, you may live in a culture where all kind of Christians have sinned and fallen into sin and you've been so disillusioned and disappointed. You may live in the most difficult situation on the face of the earth, but the work of the church is going to be completed. And the decision you and I have to make is, are we going to join in with what is the most important work on the face of the earth? Or are we going to sit on the sidelines? And miss out on the main thing Christ has called us to be and do. What's your choice? What's your choice? How about yours? What's your choice right here? What is your choice? Are you willing to obey Christ and go and make disciples over the whole earth? Teaching them. Baptizing them. Are you willing? If you're not a follower of Christ, if you maybe are a half-hearted follower of Christ, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart with conviction today that, you know, you need to stop being on the sidelines and get in the game and be a part of the greatest and most important work on the face of the earth this can be your day to decide that. Don't miss it. If you're not a follower of Christ and you realize your life is missing something because you need something bigger than yourself, what could be bigger than being a part of the body of Christ 
in a doubt-sized challenge that is so big and so overwhelming that the only way we're ever going to see it fulfilled is by the power of God himself? Don't miss that. That's why you're here. But the Lord loves you so much that he lets you make the decision if you want to obey his commands and not only be a disciple, but also make disciples. So what's it going to be? What's it going to be in your life? What's it going to be for Marvelly Baptist? Could it be in this waiting time in the life of this church that God is preparing your hearts for the greatest days in the history of Marbley when it comes to making disciples of all people groups? Could it be? Don't miss this opportunity to join in on the mission of the church in the greatest and most important work on the face of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, there are bound to be people here today that don't know you or those cultural Christians who've been feeling they are Christian because they have a lot of head knowledge about Christianity, but they've never really given their heart to you. They're just continually sitting on the sidelines, not in the game. Lord, may this be a turning point for some folks that are here today, whether they're joining us online, whether they're here in person. Father, I pray for those who need to trust Christ that they will not only believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they'll also know that he paid the penalty for their sins on the cross and he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death and gives us an opportunity to decide if we're going to follow him, if we're going to trust him. I pray for those that are convicted that they really need to do that, that they'll make that decision right now in the quietness of where they're seated. And Father, I pray for those that are followers of Christ, as you remind us of the main thing in your great commission. Holy Spirit, may you fill each of us. Fill us now with a fresh conviction to fulfill the role that you are giving us when it comes to your great commission. Oh Lord, may you do a great work in the lives of individuals here. Lord, there there are people here that are Christian, but they've never obeyed you in believer's baptism. They've never been baptized after they accepted Christ. I pray that they'll confess they've had it backwards. They've been out of whack there, and they'll get that right. They'll decide to get it right today. Lord, may you do a great work in this wonderful church. May you do a great work where this church is truly a place that keeps the main thing the main thing by seeking to fulfill its part of your great commission. Oh, Lord, may it be. But we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.